This is the eighth and final message of Bringing Good Out of Family Problems. Throughout this series, Dr. Joel Hunter has addressed situations that affect the healthy functioning of the family unit, as well as each individual therein. Yes, there are plenty of problems and troubles more common than we may think, but one thing is certain. There is always victory through Jesus Christ. Victory, a fitting subject to end our series. Dr. Hunter's message, The Family's Victory Over Destruction. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 2 through 32 will be Dr. Hunter's text from the New American Standard, and it reads as follows. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens? And art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand, so that no one can stand against thee. Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever? And they lived in it, and have built thee a sanctuary there for thy name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword, or judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou wilt hear and deliver us. And now, behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou didst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Behold how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from thy possession, which thou hast given us as an inheritance. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do but our eyes are on thee. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Then, in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed, because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jerul. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear, be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. 
put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the son of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil, because there was so much. Then on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore they have named that place the Valley of Baraka until today. And every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps, lyres, and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace for his God gave him rest on all sides. Now Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was thirty-five years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem twenty-five years. And his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi. And he walked in the way of his father Asa, and did not depart from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. And now, let's join Dr. Hunter for the conclusion of this series, Bringing Good Out of Family Problems. With his message today, The Family's Victory Over Destruction. Turn in your scriptures to 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. All year long we have been talking about God and why he allows limitations. And I think it would be a fair statement to summarize, as I am summarizing this section of that preaching to say that God allows personal and relational limitations so that we will look outside those limitations, so that we will be forced to find the answer that is not within the frustration of those limitations. Now, I want to talk about the summation of personal and relational frustrations in a message about the family. Let me say to you, that there is a major effort in this country today to redefine the family. We love to have control of things by redefining things. It gives us the sense of being the author, just as we like to define for ourselves what religion is. So too we would like to define for ourselves what the family is. I give you a caveat to that. You can redefine anything you want. You can redefine gravity, but don't step off a tall building. You can redefine religion, but if your definition does not match God's definition, your definition does not mean squat. Now, I know that may be insulting to you, and I know it's not politically correct, but it is accurate. 
You can redefine the family any way you want. But if your definition doesn't match God's definition, your definition doesn't mean squat. Now, it is not the first time that secular society has sought to define what the family is and what the family was for. As a matter of fact, you can trace every one of the trends that we now have historically. The modern conservative got his definition essentially from a Frenchman called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau said that the function of the family is the survival of, he said it's the most natural of all of the entities of human connection, and its its function is the survival of the uh, children, of the progeny, so that they can live, and after they come to an age where they can live on their own, the function is basically a conventional and convenient relationship. That's what most conservatives say. Well, the function of the family is to, to raise kids so they won't die, so that they can, we can just reproduce and go on as a race. Most people in the patriotism mentality would define the family like Aristotle defined it. He said the family is really a prototype of the nation, and therefore the rule in the family teaches people how to obey the rule of the state, and and therefore it's very helpful because the state can be much more to us than just a family can be, and so therefore um, um, that's the way it's arranged. And very much American patriots would say that. They would say, well, a family is here in order uh, to do the nation the most good. The liberal definition goes all the way back to Plato. Many of you think that it's new stuff when the government talks about government-funded daycare from the time you're this small to the time you're this big so that your parents can go off and work and achieve their destiny. Read Plato's Republic, 5th century B.C. He was the first organized Western communist that ever lived. He said, well... As much as the state can take over the raising of the progeny, the raising of the children, then that does two things. First of all, that gives their loyalty to something broader than the family. And second of all, it releases the mother and the father. He wasn't quite so concerned about mothers. But he releases the adults to fulfill their human potential as citizens. Now, where have you heard that before? You see... All of these definitions we have. Marx had a definition, an economic definition. He says the family is the basic economic unit of society. We are redefining, by the way, our family in light of our economic need, in light of our escalating standard of living. But we're not the first to do that. Marx said that. And he said that because the family needs one another economically, that's why they're so close together. But what happens when the family doesn't need each other economically anymore? What's, what happens to the family, as, as, as happened to the family, when we went from an, agrari- uh, an agri- uh, agrarian society, farmers, into the Industrial Revolution? When... We went from the mentality of you have a lot of kids so that the family can survive because every one of those kids need to be a producer. To very few can provide for the, very, for the needs of very many, and now the kids are what? Consumers. See, that's when we started raising consumers. But what happened to the family when we paid more attention 
and had more in the way of economic wherewithal. The bonds were weakened because if the family's just basically an economic unit, and by that way, that's where we, the, the, the word family and the word uh, household and the word economics comes from the same uh, Greek root. If the family is just an economic unit, then as soon as you get plenty of money, the importance of the family is decreased. Well, let me give you this morning God's definition of the family. In the first place, um, the family is not just a what we would define as a nuclear family, the mom and the dad and two kids and so on and so forth. God doesn't isn't any more confined by that definition than any of us are. It includes the nuclear family, but God's definition is much more not what is the family made up of, but where is the family going? What is the function of the family? And God says the function of the family is to lead everyone connected with that family, with that household, with that house. In Hebrew, it's bayat. In, in, uh, in, in uh, Greek, it's wokos. And it means house. Everybody connected with that family to lead them to God. Do you remember when God called Abraham? Genesis 12, 3. He said, I call you out. Now, Abraham wasn't a nuclear family yet. It was him, Abram, and Sarah, his wife, and his whole extended family, slaves, servants, cousins, uncles, aunts, everybody. And he called this family out. And you remember the promise that he made to him? By you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. How would they be blessed? By this going toward God. The function of the family was to lead the individuals to depend upon God. And it wasn't just a mom and a dad and kids. It was everyone that was included in that household of faith. Read in Scripture with me. I won't read the whole thing to you. But I want to read to you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's start with verse 1. Now, it came about that after this, the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meonites came together to make war against Jehoshaphat. Now, there is a group of families coming to make war against the family or the household of Israel. And some said, a great multitude, Jehoshaphat, is coming against you. Now, look at his reaction in verse 3. His first reaction is, he turned his attention to seek the Lord. And proclaim a fast throughout all uh, all Judah. So Judah gathered together. Now this is the house of Israel. This is the house of Israel. Judah gathered together. And they came to, in verse 5, the house of the Lord. Because that is their central place of faith. You see how the family is connected to the faith. And how the limitations of the world and how the war of the world draws them directly into the place of faith. Now, listen to the prayer in verse 7. Look what it says. Didst thou not, O Lord our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham thy friend forever? They're reciting the promise of God. Look in verse 9. It says, We will stand before this house, that is, within this family, and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou wilt hear and deliver us. 
and those who are coming against us, we pray to you, I'm paraphrasing this, now look in verse 12, for we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And look at verse 13, it says, And all Judah, it's talking about the men, because that's how they counted back then, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants and their wives and their children. So what you have here, the definition of the family according to God, is those people who are gathered together in faith, including nuclear families, but not excluding anyone else. It is the household of faith that looks to God for the answer for their lives. That's the definition of the family. Now, this is true in physics and biology as well as in faith. You know, in physics and biology, the thing that destroys is having a closed system. A system that is not open to the future and the needs from the future coming into the system itself. Anytime you have a closed system, it is, it is prone to the second law of thermodynamics, which is what? Entropy, right? You know what entropy is. It's a winding down and a disintegration. And so therefore, as we try to define the problems of the family, excluding the future, excluding the source of God, as we try to close it out and figure it out, either in psychological construct or biological determinism. I love this. Psychological construct, I'll tell you what's wrong with me, and it always starts out like that. It's not me, or it's not everybody else. It's not what is our future together. It's always what's wrong with me. When you try to define your life like that, you're in the middle of a psychological construct and you always end up blaming it on your parents or somebody who's hurt you. And so that's, that's the realm that you're trapped in. Now, nowadays, they have biological determinism. Can't help, it's just how I am. And they also have political culturalism. You have a heritage of this. It's part of your people. Don't worry about it. Okay? God says, cut that out. What is needed is an open system. Because when you look to the future together, not try to define your problems by the littlest little molecule, but when you walk toward the future together, toward me together, I will bring you into a state which is called in physics, equifinality which is French for, I'm going to bring you into a place that no matter where you started or how many mistakes you made on the way or the problems you got going for you right now, I'm going to use you mightily because that's my business and that's what I do. It's, it's, it's how... Look at, look at the disciples of, of Jesus. Look at uh, John. John was always a nice guy. John just wanted to go around loving Jesus, wanted to lay on his chest all the time. Just, you know, he was a, just a nice, mellow guy. He started off good, he continued good, he ended up good. But look at Peter. Peter starts out great guns. But Peter's life is like this. Holy cow. I mean, one minute he's saying, Peter, and you, you're the church and I'm gonna, you're the rock and, you know, the faith that you have, that's great. He's got great spiritual insight. The next minute he's saying, get behind me, Satan. Cause Peter isn't on board. Peter one moment saying, man, I'll follow you to my death. The next moment he's saying, I never knew. I mean, he's got, he's got all kinds of, but you know what? God levels that out and uses him to his absolute maximum use for the kingdom. 
Look at Paul. Started off crummy, persecuting the church. But once he caught fire, went straight up. It doesn't matter to God what your personal record is. If you are walking toward Him, if we are walking toward Him together, He will give you a state of absolute maximum use. But you've got to understand what the family is. The family has to do with faith, not with redefinition. Now, obviously, there is a war going on here. Because we are very much an irritant in this culture. There's only one book that says... A, you can't reduce life to psychological reductionism. B, you can't uh, uh, say that you are biologically determined because we'll tell you it's wrong no matter what explanations you come up with. And C, it doesn't matter what your heritage is, it's got to get in line with God or it's no good. It is not politically correct to do that. And so we're going to be an irritant. But it's not we who are an irritant. And it's not even Scripture who's an irritant. It's God who's the irritant. It's the one who defines life for us. And we either go along with his definition or we're wrong. That irritates people. Now look at what happens when you're in a war. And these mighty forces are coming against I know there's a lot of Christians right now that are scared to death what's going to happen to this land for their children and especially for their grandchildren. And they're saying, Lord, what's it going to be like for them? Are Christians going to be able to survive? I want you to see. Look at this war that goes on here. They just got done praying, we are powerless. Now, in verse 14, it says, In the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, and son of a bunch of other folks. And he says, listen. Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. What did I just say to you? I said they're not really irritated with you, even though every time somebody you, you, you see somebody in the, in the media these days talking about Christian, they're almost spitting. They're so angry. They're not irritated with you. They're irritated with God. Battle's not yours. It's God's. Look at, what, look at what he says. Tomorrow, go down against them. Now, don't think that you can just hide out. You are going to have to face the issues of the nation as a Christian. It says, tomorrow go down against them. But then there's this great relief that the battle doesn't depend on what you do or your strategy. Look in verse 17. You need not fight this battle. Station yourselves. In other words, address the problem. But from there, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. And then they start picking out people who can praise real good, and people who can increase faith, and they send them before the army. And let me show you in verse um, um, 22 what happens. The Lord set ambushes against the son of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. That's another name for the Meonites. And uh, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Mount Seir, they helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came out of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. 
Let me tell you one of the most valuable lessons you'll ever learn in your life. You probably know it already, but you may not have thought about it. Given long enough, evil destroys itself. The nature of evil is destruction. And therefore, as evil increases, it will destroy itself. It doesn't mean that the righteous are never harmed or hurt by what goes on in the culture. But what it does mean is that those forces, God turns on each other, and you can stand and you can watch the evil in this land eventually destroy itself because evil cannot last. Its nature is destruction and entropy. And it's, it's in its own closed little system. It's in the world that it has created for itself and it doesn't want anything from God. And so therefore it will come apart. Do you have to be afraid long term about your children and your grandchildren if they're in the faith? Absolutely not. If they're not in the faith, I would be very afraid for them. Now, let me, let me just tell you a story. The strategy of a Christian must be more like a shepherd than a sheepdog. If I'm going to, t- if I'm going to teach my, my guys at seminary anything this, I'm going, to t- I'm going to say, guys, you've got to learn how to be a shepherd and not a sheepdog. Most pastors are more like sheepdogs. They run around barking trying to get everybody in one spot, feel like it's their responsibility to organize the universe, and they don't even know why half the time, just feel like it's their job. A shepherd is one who leads people by what he says, by what Jesus has said, to the food and the water that they need. It's just that simple. Christians, your job in this world is not to be a sheepdog, not to bark at everybody, not to try to get everybody to see things the way you do or go the direction you're going. Your job is to live the Christian life and start leading. And whoever follows, follows. And whoever doesn't, doesn't. It's just that simple. And I will tell you that the very people that threaten us most, God will take out one after the other. You know why? Because he said, Matthew 5, 5, the meek will inherit the earth. You know how we inherit the earth? Everybody else has killed themselves off. They have taken themselves out of effectiveness. The first church I ever went to as a solo pastor, I remember walking in this little congregation that only had about 100 in attendance, and I remember seeing this one woman who frightened me to death. I mean, this woman was powerful. She was the matriarch of that congregation, thank you very much, and she didn't care who knew it, Preachers came and went, but she stayed, and that was her congregation. And I could see it when I walked in. Some of you saw Wizard of Oz the other night. This woman would have made Margaret Hamilton look like Mary Poppins. I mean to tell you, she had the fiercest look, and I went in there, and I worked for about three months, and, and I was so intimidated. And I said, Beck, Beck, what do I do? And Beck says, well, why don't you just go try and talk with her? So I sat down with this woman and said, uh, you know, it seems like there's kind of a control issue going on here. And she looked at me and said, I don't think there's any control issue. <laughs> Man, I started shaking. Well, it just seems like, you know, uh, you, you just kind of... Let me contrast that with another person in the congregation. Wolf Farmer. One of the homeless men I've ever met in my life. I, I'm not giving out names here on purpose. One of the homeless men I've ever met in my life. She, he was so shy that he could not talk without stuttering. He didn't have a stuttering problem. He was just shy. 
he was he had a big W.C. Fields nose, and he had a real bad toupee, real bad. I don't mean I don't mean I, there's nothing I have nothing against hair pieces, but when they look like camel fur and they're on sideways half the time, it just just you know just a fashion statement. It doesn't work. But let me tell you something about this guy. This guy loved Jesus. And over the years, I was there three and a half years, over the years, when I first walked in, and this lady had just come back because she heard there was a new pastor. She had just come back to take over the congregation again. And there were a lot of people gathered around her when I walked in. And there were just a few people gathered around this old farmer. Over the years, I watched this crowd totally dissipate and drift over to this crowd. Now, this guy wasn't trying to preach. He wasn't trying to lead. You know what he was doing? He's talking about Jesus. Talking about what he'd read that, that week in Scripture and how good God was. That is the character of what will happen in this world. Pray with me. God, it looks like the forces that are gathering against your word are overwhelming. But really, they're just becoming more and more evident and more and more plain. We ask you during this time to give us a vision of you. And just to call on your name. And to let the battle be yours. Help us not to rest in might or in power, but in the Spirit. Help us to... Just love Jesus better and build up whoever we can in his spirit and with his compassion. Teaching his truth, never wavering as to what scripture says. And then, Lord, we have confidence that the meek will inherit the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name.